Hello and welcome to EU and Me, the Arbury Road podcast. My name's Katrin, I'm an editor at Arbury Road and a PhD student in politics. Before we start, I'd just like to remind you that Arbury Road is run by volunteers. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing to our newsletter. And if you're able to support us with a monthly donation, for Christmas, we're running a half price offer of 350 euro a month, the price of a good coffee in Northern Europe. And for students, 190 euro, the price of a coffee in Central Europe, maybe. So you'll find these offers on our website, arboryroad.eu, or in the video description if you're watching this on YouTube. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Alessandra Ceccarelli on the HIV response and LGBT phobia in Europe. Alessandro is an affiliated scholar at the University of Cambridge and is a member of the steering committee of Fast Track Cardiff and Vale, a fast track city initiative that's working to achieve the UNAIDS targets of zero new HIV transmissions and zero stigma associated with HIV. This week is HIV testing week in Wales and next Wednesday, the 1st of December is HIV Awareness Day. So this is a timely conversation and of course an important one. Welcome, Alessandro. Hi, thank you very much for this. Hi. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourself and, and the work that Fast Track does? Yeah, sure. Um, so yes, my name is Alessandro Ciccarelli. I'm currently based in, in Wales and I'm part of this group, group of volunteers that run the Fast Track Cardiff and Vale. I think my role within the group is very much uh, supporting the um, communication and stakeholder engagement aspect of, of the work. But because it's a volunteer-led group, there's pretty much um, various things to do and people volunteer to do bits and pieces from you know, meeting people, giving, uh, delivering talks, uh, organizing events or editing videos. So there's a bit of running around, but the, the common element is that we are all together to try to meet the target, the goal of zero new HIV infections by 2030, but also to tackle and fight stigma and amplify and promote um, HIV testing, and of course, collect uh, data or support researchers to collect data in, in Wales. So yes, that's pretty much our, our work in Cardiff, Cardiff and Vale. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you work you work toward uh, improving the HIV response, I guess. And and I wonder, thinking about the whole continent, now you're focused in Wales, but if you comment on 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 Europe, how does the HIV response vary across across the continent? I mean, are there some countries that are setting a good standard that we can we can look to, or can we identify any particularly problematic countries? And given that we're sort of speaking on the general theme, what are the implications of, of the HIV response for LGBT people in Europe? Um, it's a quite a complex picture, really, quite complex landscape in Europe. Um, we should also distinguish between the European Union as such and the members of the European Union and the European region as defined by the WHO. Uh, so if you look at the first one, European Union, you could see some uh, positive trends although there is a degree of stagnation in different countries, uh, somehow the figures are quite, um, well, positive to an extent. While we look at the European region, however, the figures are not quite good. And this is um, a bit concerning, especially, especially if you consider that we come from the experience of COVID-19, you, you may expect us to have learned a lesson there, but no, unfortunately there is a, 
uh, an increase um, in an undiagnosed HIV, but there's also an increase of late diagnosis uh, of HIV infections in, in the European region, in particular in, in, particular in the Eastern region, um, which is quite, uh, quite concerning if, mm. if people get a, a HIV diagnosis when it's a, in a late stage, means that there is some implications for, for treatments. So something that is particularly urgent in the European region is to reconsider and look at the um, how we can improve and how can we make a priority earlier diagnosis um, in Europe that, that goes through testing, which would be to make testing, testing easier or more available um, in different forms, also diversify testings, giving people different options, and that is not necessarily available across uh, Europe in a uniform way. Uh, other issues that are concerned, uh, the concern HIV right now in Europe is, um, well, we want to protect the progress done so far, and we know that testing does, is not keeping up with new uh, transmissions of HIV. So that's an aspect to reinforce, but there's also the issues of prevention and treatment in certain um, regions and certain areas of the European region, which is quite uh, problematic because of lack of funding. So there is a sort of deprioritization of HIV campaigns and dedicated funding for uh, testing, prevention and treatment, which include also PrEP and um, ERT um, availability. Uh, another issue that is connected to HIV in Europe is how we target our um, our audience, how we engage the community to get tested. And we, we have seen in, in, the re in the past couple of years that there is an increase of um, late diagnosis, diagnosis in particular in certain groups, for instance, um, older generations or people that are uh, above 50 years old, um, which is quite indicative of how we are communicating the message around HIV in Europe and really rethinking our strategy around engagement and, and populations. Um, for, you ask a bit about the LGBT community, and mm -hmm. to an extent there are intersectional issues of HIV, in particular concerning certain groups within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, we know historically gay men or bisexual men uh, have been particularly engaged in this type of, um, well, narrative, but also campaigns. But this is definitely uh, an issue that should be kind of expanded beyond the LGBTQ plus umbrella. In particular, um, if you look, for instance, at groups such as um, sex workers, if you look at um, heterosexual people in this in Europe, and, and as I mentioned before, um, all the generations of 50 plus. So although there are implications that are particularly relevant for the LGBT group, it's quite useful to go beyond the type of um, mm. lens, um, if you wish. And although particularly relevant for the LGBT community is the issue of stigma, that perhaps is one of the uh, contributing factors to this late diagnosis that we are seeing now um, around, you know, what is HIV and the stigma attached to it, in particular towards um, LGBT people. And this is certainly another urgent area or a priority area, the fight against stigma that is mostly done through, you know, education, knowledge, but also by showing um, positive and empowering champions and role models within um, a variety of communities and diverse uh, communities. Yeah, and uh, I guess particularly when we're sitting here in the middle of or yeah still in the middle of a pandemic right exactly then i can see how i can see how you know um well there's no stigma associated with you know 
with with, with getting uh, COVID nineteen, right? And so it's um. You would hope all, for all of the all there. of the funding and energy that has gone into fighting fighting this this disease, which has killed far few few people than HIV, right? Um, it's uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it makes clear that there's there's um, something about the community that is affected by HIV that um is very different in people's eyes, right? Indeed, and that's why I mentioned before it's important that despite the focus on COVID-19 right now, we should really not um, lose track of the progress or we should really keep protecting the progress that we have made over the past uh, mm. decade. And, and so, yeah, prioritize HIV testing and treatment. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it should really be a priority. <laughs> and, and if anything, learn from our experience that if you throw a whole lot of funding and proactive testing at a, at a a disease or a, 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 a virus, then it works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think thinking more broadly about the other themes uh, that we wanted to discuss today, LGBT phobia is is wider than just HIV stigma, um, right? And I think we wanted to talk about this because we've seen a lot of concerning expressions of LGBT phobia in Europe just this year. Uh, earlier in the year, a number of Polish local authorities declared themselves LGBT free, banning pride marches and LGBT events. Hungary banned LGBT content in schools and media, which, as you've spoken about, is, is so important for reducing stigma, um, kind of emulating the Russian sort of so-called gay propaganda law from, from 2013. And uh, er just earlier this month, you spoke to my colleague, Georgia, about the Italian Senate rejecting a bill that would have protected LGBT people from discrimination and violence. So we've seen, we've seen these uh, really worrying expressions of LGBT phobia, but we've also seen significant backlash to those events and, and, and defense of LGBT equality. So we've seen some positive progress too. Um, in September this year, Switzerland, uh, approved same-sex marriage by by referendum, and that was a, with a two-thirds majority. So that's fantastic to see. So we kind of there, there seem to be movements in both directions, right? And and it's it's hard to know. So my question to you really is, putting this all in context, thinking about progress over the last ten years or last five years or so, is is LGBT phobia becoming worse in Europe, or are we seeing uneven progress across across different countries, different regions? I mean, what's your what's your assessment of LGBT phobia across Europe today? Well, um, I think I think there's a bit of a bit of both in the sense that it's yes, it's definitely quite uneven, and we have data from different countries that can really help us to understand what is happening. Although something that I mentioned to Georgia uh, a few weeks ago was the issues of lack of data around mm. all various issues, but we do have uh, still quite a lot of uh, quantitative or qualitative evidence that can help us to understand what's going on. And there is definitely a, an even picture and issues, but there is an overall race, a rise on, in terms of abuse or hate speech against LGBT uh, people in, in, in Europe. Okay. Uh, there it comes and it's visible in different forms and on different platforms. Sometimes it comes from um, how you would say uh, the media or you could read something on the press. Sometimes it come from official sources, uh, which is uh, particularly uh, concerning. Um, there's a, we, we should kind of ask this question through again an intersectional lens. So not just looking at um, 
lesbians or gay men or bisexual men or, or trans people, but looking at an intersectional um, picture of it. For instance, considering age in this, uh, what about younger LGBT people? What's their experience? And that's where really we see how disproportionately affected these communities are and how progress is, if it's not stagnating, it's sometimes progressing. There are some exceptions, of course, like countries such as Malta that are particularly progressive and, and inclusive in terms of policies and practices. But the overall trend is um, that there are some uh, significant issues and perhaps even regression. I was mentioning younger people the issues of homelessness is quite significant for LGBT youth in Europe. And there's plenty of data and service available to kind of break that down. Um, so yes, using this intersectional lens can help us to understand what about access to shelter and food for LGBT people? Why it's so, uh, why they're so disproportionately affected by this? And, and that's why the picture really emerged. Um, there's of course the issue of um, some, some countries or some governments or political party using um, a propaganda that is clearly against certain uh, groups within the LGBT uh, community, kind of to empower their uh, authoritarian or nationalistic uh, propaganda and kind of to isolate or marginalize LGBT mm. people, uh, which is um, concerning, at least. <laughs> but it's, um, it's more than that. It's actually quite quite uh, a, a significant problem and quite a, a priority area of work. But, as I say, it's not quite even, it's quite diverse, and in particular in the eastern region of Europe, but not exclusively there. You mentioned Italy, for instance, with this, uh, unfortunately, what happened with the, uh, the ZAN bill, which was rejected. So we don't need to look uh, too much east uh, to see it. Uh, to find out certain type of, of, of behaviors of phenomenon. Uh, it's also quite um, concerning what is currently happening across Europe for the trans and non-binary community within the LGBT um, umbrella. And I would say that that's perhaps one of the groups that is mostly under a certain type of, um, or the certain, they experience certain type of discriminations or, or attacks. Um, and of course, there's all, uh, there's all, there's a lot of aspects within that narrative. There's a side that concerns legal gender recognition that is somehow undermined, or there's not much progress in that respect. There's a narrative that concerns self-determination, and uh, again, not much progress done in Europe besides a few. Um, a few uh, countries and particularly relevant is for the younger generation, young adults and mi uh, minors in terms of self-determination and gender uh, recognition. So there's again, another aspects of the community that is not really uh, progressing uh, much. And as I mentioned before, the issues of hate speech, um, but this can be kind of expanded to kind of look through this intersectional lens and look in, in particular certain communities, for instance, uh, migrants or minority ethnic groups um, or asylum seekers and refugees that are, let's say, again, once again, disproportionately uh, affected because of their um, the characteristics and because uh, European countries are really not investing much in terms of new policies and legislations and, and, and practices, I would say, because we do see something changing in the books and in terms of policies in certain countries. But that does not mean that it's necessarily reflected in the practice uh, or in practice or um, in real changes in terms of experiences of um, LGBT um, people.
as I say, there are some countries that are particularly progressive, for instance, Malta, again, on the area of um, asylum seekers and refugees. Um, but still, um, I would say that the picture, uh, we should not perhaps take for granted certain type of um, achievements of progress that the LGBT community um, reached, uh, obtained over the past uh, decade. Mm. I mean, you've certainly painted a, a picture of there. there is... Um... There has been some regression. It's not, uh, it's not, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell whether things are getting better or worse in the world because of the way that we um, consume media. But um, it's, it's quite clear that, as you say, things are either stagnating or, or even, even re regressing. But you've, you've just spoken about um, how there are some government policies, but they're not, they're not maybe sort of leading to practical uh, improvements. Um, I wonder if you could maybe using examples from Malta or or, or whatever your what whatever um, what what do you see as ways that we can make practical improvements? What are the most important levers for fighting LGBT phobia and actually improving the the life experiences of these different communities that that you've spoken about? Um, Non-government organisations do a lot of work, but I'm also thinking about what can businesses do, what can governments do? I mean, what's what do you see as, as the most important levers and the, and the challenges? I'd say that it is important for governments to progress, to you know, change their policies, their legislations. But I think that the real strength of um, LGBT advocacy and activism is around grassroots movements mm -hmm. and community groups and, and volunteers, and perhaps even the charity sector to an extent, uh, which is really where change can happen uh, in in many countries even where certain um even where progress is stagnating at the moment so i'd say funding or helping uh, these community groups these grassroots movements is particularly important for uh, for government or for the eu in general making sure that money uh, arrives to the right uh, places and um, and if you have this kind of movements from um, that level, from a local level, uh, you can really involve various people, you can connect. So something that is particularly important is, as you mentioned, this staff network within organizations like LGBT staff networks, they really help the experiences of people within, um, well, a company, an organization or a group. However, I think even more important is to try to connect the dots between this community groups, these activists, uh, these um, realities and these groups that are a bit more isolated. But once you connect them, it's really a powerful, uh, powerful resource and, and a platform for change that is probably even more effective as a fleshy change in policy sometimes, although we need changes in policy in certain uh, countries of Europe as well. Um, I'd say that, so yes, running LGBT staff network is definitely helpful and people can do it and they can just ask themselves, do I have that in my workplace? How can we set that one, one up? Um, but there's also the fact that uh, these community groups, this grassroots movement rely heavily on LGBT people. Basically, mm. you're asking not you, as in people are, <laughs> we are asking people who are discriminated against to identify the issue and solve the issues at the same time, which is a lot of work. So it's very important that we prioritize also the uh, mental health and physical health and overall well-being of these volunteers and community groups because they may risk the burnout and it's something that, uh, well, it's not good for people. That's also not good for change because it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's it's a long term uh, 
plan really to to really make make changes so yes definitely uh, networks help and local forum like regional forums can also help uh, among you know these little communities and local communities it really empowers them and and can make uh, can really change things and but i also would say that um it's really important for governments to start uh, spelling out what they want to do and how they want to do it, but most important, what resources they're going to put into uh, their plans. Because you may have, for instance, the um, European Union coming up with a certain strategy for equality and LGBT issues, or you can have Italy with a ZAN bill. They're all excellent, excellent plans. Um, well, they can be improved always, but there's they start from a good, they come from a good place and they can really uh, change things for um, for people, but they need to be um, coupled with funding, with resources, and the government should really be governments in general should really be ready to invest and to well invest resources into these plans. Otherwise, they're just wish lists that don't really you know that don't really transform into an actual change um, for for people. I'd say that in terms of um, main challenges. We should really understand what are the communities that are mostly affected right now at this point in time. Uh, you can only do it if you have proper data collection, but just by looking at what's happening around us and asking to uh, the communities to tell us what's going on, we know that minority ethnic groups are in a particularly uh, particular disadvantaged uh, position right now within the LGBT umbrella. And we know that trans and non-binary are also in that position. Uh, young people and people that are at risk of homelessness or that are experiencing homelessness within the LGBT umbrella, perhaps these are the, the, the groups that really need that level of support and we should really invest in that type of resources to understand the issues and, and provide support and change in those areas. So those are the main challenges right now for me. Mm. And certainly data collection is something where governments Indeed. have both the, the capacity and the, the ability to do that, right? So not just ch channeling funds to, as you say, grassroots organisations to help them do things, but also giving them the tools to kind of know where the problems really are, right? Um, you've already mentioned the, the European Union as, as another potential, potential actor, I suppose, um, either as a funder for, for these types of, of groups or... Or, you know, I wonder what the other types of roles for the, for the European Union are. Um, I'm thinking about what happened this year with um, the European Parliament's response to the LGBT free zones in Poland. Um, yes. You know, this kind of symbolic gesture of declaring Europe an LGBTIQ freedom zone, um, but also coupled with the threat to withhold funding from, from those localities that had adopted the LGBT free resolutions. And we have seen quite a number of those of, of those local authorities withdraw those decisions or those measures. So in a way, it sort of seems like that strategy worked, but the way that I see it is, okay, it might've been effective, but it was a really reactive measure. What's happened is the EU has prevented discriminatory things from happening. You know, it's pre maybe prevented the situation from getting worse formally in, in those places, but it, it doesn't actually act to improve LGBT equality and inclusion. Um, Indeed. So I wonder sort of beyond, beyond uh, or in addition to, to, to making funds available for grassroots organisations, which surely the EU 
uh, has a role to play there. Are there are there any other sort of more proactive things that the European Union could be doing, uh, or is in a better place to be doing than national governments, perhaps? I think so. So just to comment on the first part of, of yeah. what you were saying, there is very it's very interesting the reactions or the the tools that the European Union has to kind of face certain type of um, LGBTQ phobia uh, or this discriminatory um, episodes. And I would say that something that we need to keep in mind, I, th I think we need to remember that the governments or governments in general do not equal all people um, in the in country. So in the case of Hungary, that does not reflect necessarily the needs and the experiences and the issues of people. So when mm. we devise a strategy or we have a plan, we should also keep in mind that to, how to balance our response or support towards those countries, how to, how to the, the, sort of a hard line or um, like a, a punishment approach towards a government may in fact have a significant impact on people and threatening for, you know, um, mentioning, for instance, cut to funding could have certain type of implications for, uh, for, for communities that need help. So there's this type of trying to juggle and balance to what extent you keep the conversation going and help the country so you can, in a way, still reach reach out and help people, in particular, mm. if you consider the importance of, of, um, of movement of people within the European Union and, well, and also uh, allocation of funding uh, if and when um, the European Union or, or the various um, groups and organizations identify uh, respect towards the equality principle and comply with the European Union law. Um, I'd say that another uh, element to consider is where, um, the acceptance of LGBTQ people overall is going up or down. And we know that at least in, in nine member states, the acceptance is going down. And th mm. that means that perhaps we should have a, a closer look at what's happening in those countries. Uh, and this is something that the kind of the LGBTQ equality strategy of the uh, European Union for the next four years is looking into so they have a plan and which is as mentioned before it's always good to have a plan and to publish a, a plan of, of of actions and and they do and they want to tackle discrimination they want to ensure people's safety they want to build um, an inclusive inclusive societies and and be leaders in the world so globally being champions of lgbtiq rights um how they're gonna do it? Uh, I'm not 100% sure how they're gonna monitor um, the progress and how they're gonna implement all the suggested strategy. But the strategy is, is really good, uh, at least on paper. And they have, as, as I said before, the power of um, empower other groups and other countries through through funding. Um, although that comes with the caveat of to what extent you can cut that down in response to non-compliance to um, EULO. Um, and yes, there's also the technical assistance and the uh, methodological support to design and implement new um, policies and regulations, but also exercises such as data collection within countries. Mm -hmm. This is certainly something that the European Union should be able to provide um, to begin with. And, um, and I think that would be a really good starting point just to understand what's going on. And, and just circling back to, uh, you know, to where we, where we started, um, we talked about uh, 
I mean, not not only for the LGBT community, but for for everyone, right? That um, that access to testing for for HIV and, and and early intervention was something that governments could be doing. I mean, is that a space where the EU should be showing more leadership too? Potentially, yes. Um, there is. Um, so the problem is that there is out there, for instance, standardized approach to data collection within local. Mm. Um, dimensions or, or, or regions or, or cities or um, so it's if that is lacking the level of standardization is difficult really to target an area over the other so we can have a broader picture uh, which is again a good starting point but really as I mentioned before for the for the HIV uh, well, this week is also, if I'm not mistaken, European HIV testing week, although there's various testing week happening <laughs> yeah. in different countries with different names, but it, the purpose is the same, which is really to amplify the message and improve mm. access to testing. And I think, yeah, so testing, treatment and, and fighting stigma are really, really should be top priorities. And, I, and I'm 100% sure the European Union can also <laughs> yeah. help with that. Yeah. It, it seems uh, it, it seems also this this issue of uh, the availability of good data and improving data collection is something that is coming up in uh, you know so many different issues that the European Union is sort of trying to address. Um, this week we'll be publishing an, an article about um, the EU's proposed resolution to uh, to address gender-related violence. And yes. a big issue there as well is just lack of data. So we, we know it's bad, but we don't really know how bad and among what, what sort of communities we should be targeting. So it seems like this is something that's incredibly important and where the EU has real strengths as well. Indeed. Um, but yeah, there's multiple yeah, venues there. And, I, and I, I do believe that the resources are there. It's just a matter of prioritizing. Mm. I understand that with COVID-19, the focus may have shifted a bit, but we can't really lose track of what we were doing. And um, yeah. Yeah, and take it as a positive message too. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to add for our, for our listeners today before, Indeed. We, before we go? One more thing. As yeah. it's uh, HIV testing week in different parts of Europe, get tested <laughs> find where you can get uh, an affordable and easily accessible uh, venue that is also um, confidential or secure for yourself where you feel comfortable and safe and and get tested because that is very important that's how we stop new um, hiv transmissions by 20, 2030 so get tested <laughs> yes thank you for that message and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, just to remind you, if you like this podcast, please like it, share it. If you can't afford to, to support us, then sharing our content is the best thing you can do to help our brewery road grow. Thanks very much. Um, see you later. Thank you, Alessandra, as well. Thank you very Bye. much. Take care.